0: This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. to Write Answers. I'm Noah Waspy, and I'm here with Beth Reimer. Beth, how is it going?
1: Noah, good to be here. It's going well. It's going well. January 2021. We're making it.
0: (laughs) That's right. I was reading um, some work from an OWP person, and she called this, she called 2020, uh, the year we made it work. And I think probably the same thing stands for 2021, right?
1: <laughs> right. Although, right, every day, as in humanity, we make it work and we constantly try to make it work better, right?
0: Absolutely. So, what's going on at OWP?
1: Good stuff. Always good stuff. We have a, um, we've been working on professional writing groups, working on proposals and supporting each other as writers. So, If you are listening to this and you are interested in writing, that maybe that writing is poetry or short stories or editorials or sharing your teacher practice, we have that community going. So I'm so excited about that. And we have our teacher's writer class starting, as well as our weekend workshop about teaching small, which is also about making it work.
0: I love it. So let's go ahead and get into our poem. This is a poem that you recently shared with the uh, listserv, the OWP listserv. And if you're not on the OWP listserv, you need to do some OWP stuff, get connected so you can be on, because they're const- constantly, teachers are sharing really cool ideas um, and connection opportunities. So recently you shared this with our group. It's called Burning the Old Year by Naomi Shihab Nye. Would you like to share that with us, Beth?
1: I would, but can I tell you a secret about one of the reasons I love this? I mean, one, I love all of Nye's work, one of my favorite poets. But um, so I, you know, was lucky enough to catch one day that Nye was coming to our local library and I was like, I'm there, front row. So she's reading and I'm watching her read and enjoying every minute of it because, um, you know, she was, she is passionate and warm and strong in her words and her poetry and her in the space and I'm just watching her um, with such adoration so I went up to get my books signed right standing in line and she looks at me Noah and she said thank you thanks for smiling while I was reading I always get nervous I felt like I had a friend and I was like what I'm your friend <laughs> and so she signed her books to me and your friend Naomi she had nine I was like at get out you know some of my treasured uh, possessions you know she doesn't know me at all but she is my friend i say and so her poetry is always like a friend to me so let me read the let me read this beautiful poem burning the old year letters swallow themselves in seconds notes friends tied to the doorknob transparent scarlet paper sizzle like moth wings marry the air so much of any year is flammable. Lists of vegetables, partial poems, orange swirling flame of days, so little is a stone. When there was something and suddenly isn't, an absence shouts, celebrates, leaves a space. I begin again with the smallest numbers. Quick dance, shuffle of losses and leaves. Only the things I didn't do crackle after the blazing dies
0: such a good poem and what a great way to start the new year by yeah, burning thank the you. old year
1: thank, thank you, you, Beth. you for that crackle yeah
0: <laughs> so today we are talking with heinemann author sarah zerwin and i could could not be more excited to share this episode with everybody But before we do, let's talk a little bit about how OWP has been leaning on Zerwin's work recently. Beth, can you speak to that?
1: Noah, I'm like dancing over here that we get to talk to Sarah Zerwin because her work has really nudged and challenged and supported teachers this year. Her book, Pointless, was one of the book studies uh, choices during our teaching of writing workshop where teachers would read together in collaboration and think about their classrooms and really dig into her work. And it really you know, nudged teachers that in the summer and really like helped them think about their classrooms and their why about grading and what would it really mean to do the kind of things that I always wanted to do. And then since then knowing her, her work is just like keeps coming back. I keep getting emails from teachers saying, I, I've changed things. I'm taking her lead and this year and my students' responses are better for it. Like over and over again, they keep saying that. So I'm so excited for all of us to really think about and be challenged by the, the model that Sarah puts forth, um, her purpose and her rationale and maybe giving us a little guidelines of how it looks, right? And then um, OWP teacher Liz Riley is there with you talking And her work too, um, just as a classroom teacher, she is always passionate and thoughtful and really took this work and said, how does it work for me? And asked the questions that I love for her to ask. So I'm I'm literally dancing, like I said.
0: Me too. And it was so great to have Liz really share this kind of zoomed in perspective as a co-interviewer. It was really fun and I can't wait for everyone to hear it. So here it is our interview with Dr. Sarah Zerwin.
2: And so the thing is um, there's this points for compliance exchange that sits in the center of our classrooms where if you're grading traditionally where um, we you know, ask students to do things, they do them, we give them points, they can cash in for grades and everything kind of orbits around that. And so if you remove that center, you have to replace it with something else. And that's really what the book is about is how to go through that process, how to put learning at the center of the classroom instead of points and grading.
0: So, So you've said that students should be the most important users of classroom assessment data, like when you do have to um, grade something, and I'm using quote fingers, even though our listeners can't see it. Um, (laughs) Can you explain that concept a bit and talk to us about how you help students to use assessment data, even if you're not giving uh, traditional points?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so If we're centering on student learning over everything else then we really have to think about producing classroom assessment data that students can use to track their learning and using our grade books as a place where they can go to see um, really how they're doing and not so much like they're just waiting for the teacher to put in a grade to tell them how smart they are but actual like qualitative data that they can look at in the grade book that helps them see where they're learning where they're growing and where they need to work a little bit more and the thing is, like, for now, at least, um, we all end up putting a grade in at the end that goes on a transcript or whatever. And that, like, I realized that there are, there are multiple audiences for that grade. There's, you know, the student, the parents, there's my school district that collects data on that. There's um, college admissions officers, there's um, car insurance companies, I mean, future employers. And I honestly can't, like assure each of those audiences that that letter grade is telling them exactly what they want it to tell them. Those audiences are certainly important and I can't disregard them, but out of all of those audiences, like who's the most important one? And I think if we want to center our classrooms on learning and student learning, then I think the kids are the most important one of those audiences. So I really try to figure out like how can I produce assessment data that my students are using to understand and see for themselves where they're learning and where they're growing. It makes them their own agents and their learning journey rather than, like I said earlier, just sitting there and waiting for the teacher to put the grade in the grade book
0: that then tells them if they're, you know, smart or not. So. Grades is communication just feels like such a smart idea, but it also feels like one of those ideas that we should have always been thinking about.
2: Yeah. I mean, i I've found that um, in various places recently, like I just think people don't think about the grading piece. And we get these grade books, these electronic grade books that we're told to use, and they are by default based on percentages and points. So we think we have to put numbers in boxes and everybody just kind of goes about their day without thinking sometimes very clearly about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, One of my assistant principals is working with our school district right now to to change the way that our grade book reports things out during the semester. She said, what if it just was like, yes, the kid is doing the work or no, the kid's not doing the work. I'm like, are you kidding me? That would change everything. So um, I don't. She, she's working on that and that's pretty awesome. So.
0: so Liz is gonna ask you a little bit more about this in depth later, but it, it would be hard to have this conversation without talking about learning goals since yeah. it seems like learning goals are probably the foundation on which not just going, having more meaningful grading is built, but also it became really clear as Liz and I were talking about this interview and how we wanted to frame it. Learning goals crystallize what is going to be taught in the teacher's mind. And we know like if you've read John Hattie, he talks about how one of the most effective things a teacher can do is really know what success looks like. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to ask you, how do you um, use learning goals to anchor your work with students?
2: Yeah, so um, going back to like moving the points for compliance um, exchange out of the center of the classroom, what goes in the center instead is a clear definition and description of what the learning work is that we are trying to accomplish. And so that for me is where um, it's the learning goals. And I really thought like, should I call these objectives or goals or standards or what should I call them? And I, the, the language is all pretty loaded actually in our world. And so I went with the thing that seems sort of most, I don't know, goals to me seem like, yeah, this is, we have goals in the class when We're trying to achieve some things. And the thing is that like, I teach mostly 12th grade right now and if you count up all the common core standards for 12th grade reading writing you get to something like 65 something like that and that's impossible it's too much it's way too much and so I had to figure out how to narrow it down to make something meaty and um, easy for my students and me to keep in the forefront of our thinking as we moved through the class together so that's really
0: the purpose of those. Can you give us an example of some of your your personal learning goals for your classroom? Well yeah, I mean the ones that are in the book
2: um, are actually the ones I am still using, which is kind of crazy. Like um, I went, they haven't, but, which says to me that I maybe landed on something after a process of a few years that really kind of captures things. But um, like a reading goals, here's one. The student is a reader with a vibrant self-directed reading practice that will continue beyond the classroom. Uh, that's the reading goal for my, my senior class that's not um, anchored to the IB or AP curriculum, because we have both of those in my school. But in my um, AP class, the first goal is also a learning goal, but it is this. The student actually reads a diverse range of literature, and it says, novels, short, Novels, short fiction, plays, poetry essays, because we are human beings and reading complex imaginative works gives us practice in living a human life and imagining the experiences of others. So it's essentially the same goal about having a reading practice that goes beyond the classroom. But for the AP goal, I tweaked it towards like literature study because AP is about literary interpretation, and tried to like half it so that it's a meaningful like let's not just read to analyze for like the exam purposes or whatever. Let's actually make that interpretive work important and meaningful. So I just try, I try to articulate that with with the goals and then an example like a, of a writing goal. Um, the student writes to think through life, to pull ideas together, to say something important to a targeted audience and for a specific purpose. The student is intentional about form and flexible to meet the challenging the changing needs of audience and purpose. There's kind of a lot in there, but it's really ultimately about like you're writing because you're a human and you have things that you want to say. You know? and. Um, so anyhow, I just try to make them sort of bigger and more authentic and get rid of all of the, the teacher language and, and all of that.
0: Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. The, the connection I'm hearing, that I'm read and I'm hearing is you're making the standards or the learning goals more human. You're making them into things that are not just things that a student needs to do because someone told them, but you're making it into why somebody would want to learn why somebody would need that infor- that skill or strategy. And it it seems like to be able to um, do any of this work, whether it's just teaching students well or giving the feedback well so that students will use it and learn and grow, that there needs to be a sense of trust and a s- sense of community. And I was thinking about that like through the beginning of the book and then you hit it on chapter four. So in chapter four, you talk about the importance of building community like if you know that feedback is important you also know that someone's only going to receive your feedback if they trust you and they see you as a credible source of information right um and you also talk about students giving each other feedback and it's it's hard work for a teacher to establish their own credibility and trust it might be harder for students to do that So I was so interested in chapter four, where you talked about building that classroom culture of feedback and you provided some really smart and creative examples of ways to do this in your classroom. So can you talk a bit about why and how you develop this culture of and share the feedback load with your students?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is that um, our student, like, you know, Average classes, maybe 30 or so, a little bit more in some schools, a little bit less in others. Full teaching load in my building is 155 kids spread over five classes. Um, Other schools, it's higher than that. Other schools, it's lower than that, right? And teaching writing and um, especially is like kids need to have feedback on their work and they need to have it constantly. And there is no way that one teacher can provide enough feedback for all of those humans Alone, There's just no way. So we really have to figure out how they can help us with that feedback load. And so I think that for me, it starts number one with getting the kids comfortable with each other and getting them um, feeling safe in the room as much as possible. And so I really work on small group um, cohesion and I build, I call them pod groups that they're in for Uh, extended periods of time, sometimes for a whole semester. It just kind of depends on how they're going. And then I might shift them and move them. And in fact, during um, this weird disrupted year, the pod groups have been critical because um, we've been mostly online so far. We're going to be moving a week after next into a two day a week hybrid sort of thing for kids. But um, during, especially during the online stuff, I made pod groups. I had the kids tell me who's in this class that like would be a good positive force for you to work with because um, I wanted to anchor the connections they already had with each other because I can't build them in person in the classroom. And so we made these pod groups and they became these little tiny communities that uh, drew the kids to each other and drew them to the class and made them feel like they were more connected to the course, even though we were just working with each other via, you know, video chat. And so um, so those small groups, whether we're in person or not, are so important. It becomes this other small community in the room where kids feel like ownership and connection and they belong. And uh, sometimes that's what keeps them coming into school and like my or into my class and my my goal is that for those small groups they naturally turn to each other for feedback and so they're getting feedback from each other constantly like hey I wrote this thing can you look at it or hey I had this thought last night about the book, what do you think and. That um, that kind of thing that once it's happening naturally is what I go for. But it takes a while to get there. And so we do a lot of silly things just to build community. Um, I award plastic dinosaurs for various competitions. Yes, we're talking about like, 17 and 18 year olds here and they love them. Um, we uh, I have various like favorite like get to know you, get to know each other activities that we do. Uh, creating a pod like identity somehow I had pods this week come up with a shared patronus for the pod Um, so they had to talk to each other to figure out like is there some animal they all have in common that kind of speaks to them kind of thing that could be their shared pod patronus so lots of silly stuff that gets them talking to each other and it goes a long way to making things comfortable. Also in the classroom, when we're in person, I do whole class community building. One of my favorite is just a series of this and that questions where it's like, if you like this or that, like dogs, that side of the room, cats, that side of the room, go now talk to each other. Why are you standing where you're standing? And then get a few kids to report out. I mean, it's silly and goofy, but five minutes spent doing that goes a long way to get kids feeling connected. And then in terms of sharing the feedback load, I've been working more and more on like empowering individual kids to be the driver of the feedback that they need and that maybe they don't even um, need, they don't need me. <laughs> of course they get my feedback, but um, you know, maybe they need me less. And one key with that is um, teaching them how to use mentor texts and seeking out mentor texts. Like how do you actually use mentor text to help you figure out what you can do to revise a piece of writing. So like really getting into the in the details with them about what it looks like to do that work. So I've been doing more and more of that. And then the other piece too is, um, so I, I cultivate these pod communities, but then I don't actually require them, at least during online teaching this year, I haven't required them to necessarily use their pod in class for feedback. Um, Cause sometimes they're still just not totally comfortable, you know? Um, And so I'll say to them, you know, you need, so we're going to do this revision work, and there's a couple steps in the revision. One is finding a mentor text that you can use to help you um, envision, you know, where you want to go with the work. The other is getting feedback from a reader. And your reader could be somebody in the class, or it could be somebody else outside of the class. But either way, your job is to set that reader up to give you the feedback that you need. And so we'll talk about, we talk about feedback frameworks and like, how do you set up the writer's memo? So you get the feedback that you need and how do you train your feedback person if it's like your parent and I'm here to hear me talk about what good feedback looks like, how do you train that person to like really give you the kinds of comments you need, just really to like put the locus of control on the student. And it's been really wonderful this year because I've gotten, I've seen lots of notes in the margins from parents and, um, siblings who are away at college and like uncles and friends that are in other classes. And, and just, I just think it's so wonderful. Like I imagine this kid sitting there like, all right, who, who can I reach to in my life to give me feedback on this? And I just think that's really, really, really lovely. So I'm just trying to really empower them to, um, or show them that they have the power to, um, to be in charge of like getting their piece of writing to be better by seeking out the feedback that they
0: need. So, It's just beautiful because, like, I know I'm supposed to focus on writing in this interview because, you know, we're writers and it's the Ohio Writing Project, but I'm just thinking about the friendships that these kids are able to form that they might not have formed and the deepening of the friendships and the deepening of the relationships with the people in their lives that you're helping them build through writing. (laughs) It's just, I mean, it's just, you're helping them become deeper humans, not just, good writers, which is, we want both, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So we do. And school should be about that, about developing the humans. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Liz.
3: Sorry. With the feedback then, like where do you, I, this is kind of skipping ahead, but so when do you give them the feedback in the process? Does it just depend on the situation? Is it more in the final stages of things? Is it initial? Is it when they need it? I guess that's more of a practical question, but I love how you're empowering them. But then, when, when do they get your eyes on the work, I guess?
2: Yeah, I'm really glad that you're asking that because I think teachers have to be incredibly intentional about that piece because I think our gut reaction is that I have to look at everything and we don't have time to look at everything, right? Like I need to be a mom and a wife and a sister and a daughter and a, a dog owner. And if I don't go to yoga, I'm all those people in my life are gonna be unhappy. You know, I've got to sleep, <laughs> You know, I need to feed myself, like it all, all of it plays in and I can't look at everything. So I think it's really important for teachers to think like, where would my feedback be most effective, most effective. And so here's an example in my, um, my senior um, it's called senior literature, composition and communication class. It's the learning goals that are at the foundation of the book, Pointless Uh, What we did this term is the students would write um, a couple of drafts um, over two weeks, and on those drafts I would look pretty quickly and I would just give them one comment that would say, if you were to revise this here's what you maybe could work on one comment, and then um, in the third week, they would pick one of those two pieces and they would revise it. They'd go through all the steps of the revision process, which was find a mentor text, get feedback from a reader, and then I would dive in again after I had done that. Um, I didn't mean to turn my camera off there. Um, I would dive in again after they had gotten that feedback and I would take a look and see what I could offer to help them continue to grow the piece of writing. So, Yeah, so it's definitely not a lot of feedback on everything. I just have to think, like, where is my feedback most helpful to them to grow them and move them forward? There's a lot of stuff my students do in my class that I look at very quickly just to see that they're engaging in the work and to get a sense of how it's going to inform my instruction. But I really am trying to even more and more and more as the years go on, try to figure out, like, Like, where minimally can I be most impactful with my feedback and work? And certainly not on something that, like, not a lot of feedback on something that I'm not going to ask the kids to revisit and keep working on. And now that I don't put grades on things, I don't have to, like, write comments to justify the points I took off. So
0: it's just comments. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
3: So in switching back to the learning goals, I think one of the pieces that I've run into this year, even in talking to other teachers, is I've embarked on my own journey with this. Um, it's hard to narrow it down to the 10 learning goals that you, yeah. that you do in your book. Um, and I, I love the process that you set up, but I guess like what advice do you have when it comes to narrowing down that list and learning to let go of some of the things that maybe you've done in the past that don't necessarily line up with what you've realized you now value.
2: Yeah. The letting go is hard. Cause we really try to, um, we want to put so much in that is meaningful and that we feel is meaningful. The, this pandemic and the teaching, the pandemic has been an interesting challenge in that. Um, I don't know how your schools are doing things, but, In my school, we've been asked to make our semesters, all the stuff we do in one semester, we do now in a quarter. And that has been a really interesting, the reason we do that is so that the kids are only managing three to four classes at a time um, instead of, you know, five or seven. So that I think is totally worth it. But that has been a real challenge. Like we've had to, my colleagues and I have had to work together to take what we already had that we already thought was pretty focused on the goals that we have for the courses and narrow it down even more. And that's, it's hard because we've had to say, oh, we have to set that thing aside we we're not gonna be able to do that thing we normally do and that's really really hard but i think that it's actually something that we need to keep doing again and again and again like it starts by realizing we actually cannot teach everything that we are expected to it is impossible if you try to do it you're not going to do any of it well so like um going back to like sort of the assessment gurus they have been saying for years that like kids can see any target that they can see clearly and that holds still for them and same goes with like our overall goals with the learning, learning goals for the class. Like they can understand what we're doing if they can see it clearly and it makes sense to them. So narrowly down to those 10 goals, I think creates 10 or less if you can even creates a really clear target for everybody to, um, to focus on. And It's really assessment 101 from there. Like, what are you teaching? <laughs> like, what are your goals? and then how are you going to do that how are you going to ask the kids to engage in it and then how are you going to know that they've actually met them i mean it's what we've all learned in assessment courses when we learn we're learning to be teachers and uh, from there you know it's really you've got to look at everything you're doing in your class like does it anchor on one of those learning goals that you've just come up with and if it doesn't then it needs to go like we have to constantly jettison the stuff that we're doing that gets in the way of the kids doing the most important work we have to be vigilant because we, con- I mean, we are constantly like, oh, I'm just going to do that one thing. It'd be really fun. And then all of a sudden, we don't have enough time to do everything, you know? And it's hard. I mean, my lesson plan for yesterday, holy crap, I needed, we have 90 minutes. I probably needed like two and a half hours. I don't know what I was thinking. So halfway through, it's like, okay, we're we're changing everything. <laughs> so.
3: So that actually leads into my next question because time in particular this year is so weird and we have so little time for all of the things that we used to have so much time for. And I think what I have found is so important in your book and what you're talking about here is that idea that students are constantly reflecting on how they're doing, that they're taking more ownership. Um, So for you, how, how are you fitting in that reflection piece this year with your students or I guess what does that look like on a really practical or even like day-to-day basis in a way that might be different or similar to the way that you've done it in years past
2: yeah I mean we're actually doing it a little bit more often this year because the class is condensed I've got you know four 90 minute class periods a day with each class and it's actually more class time than I would normally have with them and so um, it, usually I do once a week, like every Tuesday, maybe towards the beginning of the week where I ask the kids to look at their, their learning goals that they chose for themselves. And they're, I have them set up these pages to track their progress so that they can get a sense of where they're, how they're doing um, with their goals. So I have them reconnect with those once a week usually, but I've been doing that twice a week, uh, usually Tuesdays and Thursdays. And honestly, it doesn't take very long to like actually achieve what it needs to achieve. Cause the point is that they have their goals they've set for themselves in front of them at least twice a week. And they're looking at them at least twice a week. I mean, if you've had, you know, we've all had goals that we've set and like, we know that we're most successful if we keep connected with our goals and keep an eye on how we're doing. So. That's the point of it is to try to just keep them connected with their goals. And so it might take two to three minutes. And I actually will say, all right, guys, here's my tracking page, my goal tracking page in my writer's notebook. (laughs) Let me tell you how I'm doing on each of my goals. All right, now your turn. Go. You've got two minutes. Um, And depending on what else is on the schedule for the day, I might invite maybe two or three kids to just say, tell us how you're doing on one goal, good or bad it doesn't matter. And that gives me the opportunity to jump in and offer some really quick on the spot, like, Hey, have you tried this? Or what if you did that? Or does anybody else have an idea about how this person could like, maybe like figure out how to get the reading happening regularly or whatever they're working on. So then the other piece is memos is writer's memos. And like, I won't read a piece of writing without a writer's memo on it. I just send it right back to the kids. So it becomes, um, they, it becomes so, um, just part of the process for them. I tell the kids it's like you're showing me they're showing me the work like you do in math on math problems. Like I can't really see how you got to the piece of writing sitting in front of me without you letting me in to your thinking. So that is another piece of just making sure that the writer's memos are are always there and they get to a point where the kids are just doing it without me even asking. Um, but yeah, because that's another really important. It helps me in terms of assessment because it, focus, it focuses my feedback as in working with them and helps me see what they're working on and what they're struggling with. But for them, it's an important uh, reflection piece that I think they really must be doing.
3: And then, with that, like when you get to the end of the quarter, then they've done this reflection maybe once or twice a week, and then you get to these learning letters. And that's something that I've adopted this year. I had done grading conferences in the past, and I did the learning letters this past quarter, and I loved it. Um, and I'm curious about how you teach into that reflection, because reflection is hard for students. Um, so, how much how much do you do to get them to reflect the way that you want them to, or to be able to articulate like in their writer's memo, what you want them to articulate?
2: I think models are incredibly important. And so um, I frequently provide models of writer's memos and really pointed questions for the writer's memos too, you know, like whatever it is that we are, um, we are focusing on with that particular part of the curriculum or whatever. I try to have the kids articulate in the writer's memos so that's really important. Um, but on the letters, so the letters really changed for me when I um, realized that asking them to write it as a story might get them where I wanted them to be with those. And um, as I have in the book, a student named Emily a few years ago, she just very naturally wrote part of her letter as a story, her journey with her um, her interpretive writing and AP Lit. And I looked at that and I thought, holy crap! Why aren't I asking everybody to write as a story? This is amazing. And you know, if you look at all the sort of the academic, you know, research on the power of stories or whatever, it's like, we understand the world through narrative and story. That is what makes us who we are. And it's so like ubiquitous that we don't even notice it. It's the air that we breathe. And so anchoring on that, I think um, helps the kids not only write something that really does reveal where they have learned and what, where they have grown, I think it also helps them know it better themselves too, because it's anchoring on a format, a structure that we use constantly anyway. And so, um, I mean, when I first was kind of doing this, this journey, um, the kids would write arguments for me about why they should have the grade that they think they should have. And now that they're writing stories, it's a completely different experience. And so um, to get them to teach into that and get them there again, models, providing models for them, um, just like the letters in the book. In fact, some of those are models that I have the kids read. Uh, but then also like giving them some like, so you're thinking of a story here. Are you the protagonist or the antagonist? What are the conflicts that you've come up against? Who are the other characters? Where are the settings where the work took place? Um, and so and not that like not every kid will use every single aspect of story deliberately, but it gets them moving to a place where they really are sitting there and thinking, okay, well, where did I start? And then what happened? And then where did I end up? And that really gets them into the reflection, I think, that, um, that helps to really see what they did learn and where they grew.
0: So we only have a couple more questions for you, Sarah, but I wanna make sure that I remembered to uh, plug the book. The book is called <laughs> Pointless, an English Teacher's Guide to More Meaningful Grading, or is it Pointless, sorry.
2: it's however it's whatever you want it to be really Um, it's
0: one of those.
2: it's one of those words that i don't know it's it's grabs your attention for sure and i don't
0: know it does anyway i want to make sure that people get this book because there's so much more than what you've said in this podcast even though you've said so much great stuff this book is filled with um, but, you know, some books are filled with like really great thought processes and some books are filled with really great practical things you can do in the classroom and the, in in your book you have both and you're also a really fun to read writer. You have great voice and I can't recommend this book enough. But I wanted to like toward the um in an, in an article, in a blog post you wrote for Heinemann uh over the summer. I you were talking about planning for an uncertainty. And toward the end of that post you said my hope is that I'll come out on the other side of this, this experience with a classroom that is kinder and more flexible to welcome each of my students exactly as they are. Now we are recording this interview just a few days after the Trump rally that turned into an insurrection that occurred in our nation's capital. Can you talk a bit about the importance of a kinder, more flexible classroom during these scary times?
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that um, the direction I've been really moving in my thinking, my evolving thinking since since I wrote the book um, really does speak to this because ultimately, like what I want in my classroom is for it to be a place where my students feel safe to be exactly who they are. And, And what that means is when they walk in the room, they know that their voice is valued. They know that they're respected. They know that they have meaningful connections with other people in the room. They know that if they take risks and they don't turn out so well, it's going to be okay. Um, They know that they should take risks in order to really grow as a reader and a writer. And they um, all, all of that needs to happen for growth for kids, for readers and writers. But all of that also makes a classroom a place that where if the rest of the world feels chaotic, this place feels okay. And um, that is what I'm really hoping to work toward. And so grading plays an enormous role in that because if the grading that we're doing is ranking and sorting and evaluating and constantly broadcasting a high stakes percentage grade in the grade book, then that creates a space that feels unsafe, it can for kids, where they're in competition with each other instead of collaborators working toward everybody's success. And where they're afraid to take risks because there will be great penalties if they do, and so that I'm just trying to make sure I'm not doing that. Um, and another piece with all this too that has been with my evolving thinking is um, I'm really thinking about um, the power of the red pen. Like I, I mean, I haven't like literally used a red pen for a long time, but I think that there are places for all of us as writing teachers when we feel like. Well, I need to make sure that this is super correct. So, uh, this is the final draft. I'm going to mark all the errors and to fix them. Um, you know, whereas I might not be like focusing on errors in the process towards the end, it might be, but I started realizing like, "Oh crap, that's still the power of the red pen." Is there a different way I can address that because it's all like you're the ones who are totally in charge of this piece of writing until the very end when I come in and tell you it's not done until everything is totally correct in here. And then it gets into things like white language supremacy, which is something I've been learning about, you know, correct by whose standards, right? And um, if that's our standard, like what other ways of using language um, that students might use very eloquently are we completely missing out on? You know, and so I've really been interrogating myself my own practice of like the places where I have still been wielding the power of the red pen. So, um, for example, I've shifted instead of marking errors on those final drafts. um, I've made a list of like, here are some common mechanical errors that I've been seeing across all of your papers, and there are links to resources, um, of places you can learn more about them. And I'm also a resource I'm happy to help you if you want come see me during office hours. But why don't you pick two or three common mechanical errors off this list and see if you can address them in your writing. So there it gives them the locus of control again. I'm still like teaching, you know, correct mechanics are important. Absolutely, right, because there are times that your writing is going to be judged by that and, you know, beyond the happy place of my classroom. So that's important. But also, how can I make it a way where the kids are really feeling ownership over it. So. That's one place things have really been moving for me, but I just am realizing how um, all of it is wrapped up together and making kids feel safe and valued for who
0: they are. That's it, That's the. it's a safe place and it's a place where you yeah. feel valued. So as we bring this interview to a close, I wanna make sure I also thank you so much for your time, mm-hmm. your thoughts, your wisdom. This has just been such a wonderful experience for Liz and I to be able to talk to you, Sarah. So I'm very
2: much enjoyed talking with both of you. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So how has writing about your work affected the way that you teach?
2: Oh, it's, it's great. I, I think um, I am so much more intentional about what I'm doing in my classroom, uh, because of the process of having to write about it to the level of clarity where an editor and a publisher is like, all right, cool, we'll publish that. Um, it's, you know, it's this like constant reflection, like I know that the 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 book wouldn't have worked if I wasn't like in the classroom doing the work at the same time, right? And I know that my teaching in the classroom was better because I was writing the book. It just gives me this chance to really reflect constantly over what I'm doing in the classroom, thinking about how can I make this, you know, clear and meaningful for readers um, Once I once I actually get it down on the page. So, and that um, goal of trying to make it clear, meaningful for readers actually makes it clearer and more meaningful um, in my classroom for my kids. So I think that the teaching makes the writing better. And I think the writing makes the teaching better.
0: I just love interviews like this because not only did we get to hear about how to make our grading or our evaluation of student work more meaningful for ourselves, more importantly for the students, and even for their family members. We got to see how an expert in meaningful grading, Dr. Sarah Zerwin, we got to see her thought process, what goes into, why she does what she does, and we even got to see some really great tips and tricks for how we can do this work in our own classrooms. To find out more about Dr. Zerwin's work, uh, check out our show notes. We have links to where you can follow her on Twitter. We also have a link to her newest book, um, as well as links to uh, where you can find Liz Riley, our co-host on Twitter. So be sure to check out those show notes. And as always, thank you so much for listening.